Now, at the start of the book of Acts, the church in its infancy is together in the city of Jerusalem. The resurrected Christ appears to them and tells them to stay in the city and wait for the promise of the Father. A few days later, God sends His Holy Spirit in a major outpouring, filling members of the church and creating a lot of noise, it seems. In fact, we're told at this sound, the multitude came together, and we see that thousands upon thousands of people followed that sound to where the church was gathered. Then the Apostle Peter stands up, and he preaches what was evidently a very powerful sermon about the Lord Jesus Christ. We're told thousands of people were cut to the heart. Even so, these people didn't immediately know what to do with what they've heard. Evidently, they were convicted by Peter's sermon. They were cut or they were pierced to the heart. That gospel message that he preached penetrated to the deepest parts of them. But they all looked at Peter and the other apostles and asked, what now? What do we do with this conviction? What should we do in response to this good news? They asked, brothers, what shall we do? Now that's a very natural question to ask. It's a great question to ask. These people are inclined to follow Jesus, but before they can, they need to know how. Brothers, what shall we do? I grew up in some churches that often uh, emphasized certain points of theology to the neglect of more practical matters. Um, So one might hear 20 sermons on the doctrine of predestination before they hear even one sermon on, say, how to raise your children in the Lord. Well, when I first started in in pastoral ministry among these churches, I was invited to join a, a private online forum where many of these churches' pastors would come together and they would discuss various topics and Bible passages. And my first and only post was one titled, Brothers, What Shall We Do? I had a strong conviction that our theology wasn't leading to any kind of meaningful action among the disciples of Christ sitting in those pews. I feared that God's people in those places were hearing the theology preached. They were nodding along. And then they were returning to their lives away from the church without knowing what to do with that theology, practically speaking. I was attempting to ask this group of pastors, what are the practical implications of what we believe? Now, unfortunately, I wasn't clear enough Um, evidently, because I started a small firestorm in this forum. I'm not entirely sure how, but I think many of them believe that I was suggesting we just establish all kinds of extra-biblical programs in the church. You know, we, we keep church members busy every night of the week and that sort of thing. But that's really not what I meant. I was simply asking, brothers, we believe, now what do we do? Isn't that where Paul's letters usually lead? In a lot of his letters, he may spend the first half of the letter or more uh, teaching about Christ, teaching about the gospel, teaching about our salvation, but he usually doesn't stop there. He usually ends the letter with some very practical lessons. 
In other words, he says, in light of what we believe about this, here's what we do. I remember reading the comments on that online post and thinking to myself, I just don't understand why there would be any resistance at all to such a simple and sincere question. In fact, it's a biblical question. I just read it from Acts 2. Now, it occurred to me only later that perhaps the problem was that they didn't have an answer. When Peter preaches his sermon in Jerusalem, there in Acts 1 and 2, he lifts up Jesus, presenting him as both Lord and Christ. Many in the crowd are convicted. They suddenly feel it's imperative to take this Jesus seriously, to respond to him as both Lord and Christ. So at the heart of their question, brothers, what shall we do? They are asking, how do we submit to our Lord? How do we obey him? How do we follow him? And that's the question at the heart of this study. For the next three months, I will attempt to answer the question, how do we follow Jesus? Now, many of us have been following Jesus for a long time, and we may think this study is just too elementary for me. I, have, I already know how to follow Jesus. I've been following him for years, and that's probably true, but so had the pastors in that online forum years ago. Yet they couldn't answer that fundamental question, how do we follow Jesus? But there's a second good reason to return to the basics of Christian discipleship, if you will. Have you ever tried to teach someone a skill that maybe came second nature to you? It can actually be quite challenging when you know it so well, but they don't know it at all. For example, my daughter, she's learning how to sound out words on a page. Now, Danae, an elementary school teacher, is very good at teaching this basic skill. I am not, because for a long time, I've never thought about how to sound out a word. I just see the word, and I say it. But Nora, she needs help sounding out each and every letter. And this is true when it comes to following Jesus as well. Not long ago, I was speaking with a gentleman who told me he was a Christian, and when someone tells me they're a Christian, I consider that an open invitation to say whatever I want about the Bible. And so I did, and we began a, a nice little conversation. Now, throughout our conversation, I quoted um, the book of Romans a few times, and I often said things like, Paul said, or Paul wrote, and then I would cite a verse. And this gentleman, he nodded along, as admittedly I did most of the talking. But when there was a break in the conversation, he finally asked a question that evidently had been on his mind the entire time. He asked me, now, who's Paul? That gentleman reminded me that not everyone has the same level of understanding. It's easy enough to forget that some people haven't followed Jesus as long as others. Some people haven't studied the Bible or haven't been taught the Bible as much as others. And though it may be challenging for us, we need to learn how to talk about Christian discipleship, how to explain it, how to teach it, 
in ways that would benefit even new believers or very young believers or perhaps even would-be believers. In other words, there's something in this study for everyone. For some, it's a refresher course, and for others, these lessons will be quite foundational. Um, Maybe we've forgotten. Or maybe we've never heard what it means to follow Jesus in all of the, the ways that we'll eventually cover. For instance, how do we follow Jesus when we read the Bible? Or how do we follow Him when life isn't going as planned? How do we follow Him at home or at work? How do we follow Him when we're interacting with people outside of the church? I'll address all of these areas and more, but today we're going to go all the way back to the very beginning, if you will, of Christian discipleship. Let's go to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. I know we've heard this expounded for us recently, and I don't plan to go into as much depth, but I do want to pull some relevant things out of this. Mark chapter 1, I'll begin reading at verse 14. Now after John, that is John the Baptist, was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So this is relatively early in Jesus' ministry. He's calling some of his first disciples to follow him. And perhaps the most remarkable facet of this story is the complete lack of hesitation on the part of those first disciples. Jesus says, follow me. And they instantly lay aside everything and follow him. Now, it's always possible that not every detail is recorded for us, maybe There was some conversation between them, but it certainly seems as though the Spirit has intentionally directed the authors of the Gospels to give us a clear impression that Simon and the others had no hesitation whatsoever. When Jesus said, follow me, they followed. Why is that? Well, first of all, I think we need to recognize that something extraordinary is taking place here. And by that I mean something out of the ordinary. Jesus is not an ordinary man. And the disciples are not responding to an ordinary man. They are experiencing a a supernatural compulsion to follow Jesus. Later in his ministry, Jesus said, No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And that word draw literally means to drag. 
Now, that's not to say following Jesus isn't a willing pursuit on our part. God's not dragging these fishermen in Mark 1 as they, you know, kicked and screamed, no, Lord, I don't want to go. But God's Spirit has flipped a switch, if you will. Something's changed. In John 3, Jesus tells one of the Pharisees, a man by the name of Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, no one, unless one is born of the Spirit or born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus comes preaching about the kingdom of God, and while Simon and the others don't yet understand many things about this kingdom, they are immediately drawn to it, it seems, though perhaps dimly, they see it, and they follow Jesus. Again, from John 3, Jesus says, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know uh, where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. To be born again in this sense is to be born of the Spirit. And I make that point for a couple of reasons. First, it helps us to understand why these disciples were so willing to drop everything and follow an apparent stranger. Again, Jesus was no ordinary man. What did he say in John 10? My sheep hear my voice, not as a mere man, but as the Son of God, and I know them, and they follow me. Second, as we consider what it means to follow Jesus in all of these different areas of life, it's incredibly encouraging to know that we are not following him by our own strength, or willpower. We enter into this new life in Christ by the power of God, and we continue in this life by the power of God. As Paul told the Philippians, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. There will never be a time when or an area of life where we are walking alone. Never. Though Christ left this earth and he ascended into heaven a long time ago, he still says to us, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is, however, the unseen side of the coin. On the other side, the side we do see, God calls us into a life of faith. Notice again what Jesus preaches in verse 15. As he moves from place to place, proclaiming the gospel of God, he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. No wonder divine help is required to follow Jesus. Think about this for a moment. This carpenter's son from a little respected village in Galilee, is going around claiming the long-anticipated kingdom of God is finally here. All of those amazing prophecies, all of those incredible promises of the Old Testament are coming to pass, and how do we know? Well, this carpenter's son from Nazareth claims to have brought it with him. He claims, if you can believe it, to be God's Messiah himself. He claims to be the heir to the throne of David. He claims to be the king of kings. This lowly Nazarene, who doesn't look like much in the flesh, 
claims he will be the one to defeat all of God's enemies and finally establish God's kingdom. Now, if you're a first century Jewish fisherman, what do you do when this self-proclaimed Messiah approaches you at work and says, drop what you're doing, forget about your livelihood, I want you to sacrifice whatever few comforts you have in this life, and I want you to follow me right here, right now. What do you do? I suppose you have at least three options. First, you could simply decline. Many did. Many still do. Second, you might ask a few follow-up questions like, I don't know, follow you where exactly? Where are you going? Or what will happen to me if I do? And your third option is this. Repent and believe. Turn away from your former life and trust this Nazarene. Hebrews 11 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, please notice the order presented in that passage. Understanding does not lead to faith. It's the other way around. Faith leads to understanding, and faith is the conviction of things not seen. Jesus tells his would-be disciples to believe in the gospel. Believe. He calls them to have faith. He tells them to trust. He does not explain everything to them right away. He does not offer an extensive list of Pros and cons, you know, if they were to follow him, here are the advantages, here are the disadvantages. He simply says, believe and follow. Understanding will come in due time. This has always been true for followers of Jesus. God tells us, excuse me, before he shows us. He tells us before he shows us. He says, trust and you'll see. Rather than, well, let me show you so you can finally trust and believe. Throughout his ministry, Jesus was constantly showing people the truth of his identity through the the miracles and the power he displayed. And how did they respond? They still denied him. And when they couldn't deny his miracles, they simply attributed that power to the devil himself. You see, no amount of evidence will turn an enemy of Christ into a lover and follower of Christ. The Christian life is always a life of faith, the conviction of things not seen. Ultimately, God calls us to trust in what He has said and live accordingly. And our understanding develops from there. We see clearly that kind of thing taking place here in Mark 1. Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Jesus offered no further explanation. The disciples didn't ask any follow-up questions. He said, follow me. And they replied, okay. Now before I go any further, it's worth noting 
the object of these men's trust? What are they putting their trust in exactly? Obviously, they're not trusting in in wealth or a more prosperous life. Jesus doesn't offer them wealth. And he really doesn't look like a man who could give them wealth. In fact, they are essentially walking away from their current source of income without any promise of income coming from somewhere else. Are they trusting in a a well-articulated plan for their lives? Well, did they hear Jesus um, lay out what's in store for them? Making them think, well, that sounds a lot better than what we're doing right now. No. All Jesus said was, I will make you fishers of men. Well, what does that even mean? What does it mean to be a a fisher of men? Does fishing for men pay the bills? Is it a a better life than fishing for fish? What, What are we getting ourselves into? Now, I'm not sure what the disciples really understood at this point, but I suspect they're not entirely clear on the plan. And that's evidenced as you go along in the story and you see the conversations and the questions and the doubts. And so why go? Why do these men go? What exactly are they putting their trust in? Well, the answer is Jesus. It's a short answer. It's a simple answer. But that's the answer. Jesus. Full stop. Jesus didn't say, follow the plan. He didn't say follow the money or follow the fame or follow the success or follow the potential for something greater or anything we might be prone to take into consideration if we're going to make a a big life change. He said, follow me. Never mind every other consideration. Forget about the life you have. Don't worry about this uncertain future. Look at me, he said. Put your trust in me. The disciples trusted in the person of Christ. He was the sole object of their faith, and he should be the sole object of ours. So as we think about what it means to follow Jesus, allow me to state the obvious. Let's not lose sight of Jesus. The object of a Christian's faith is not a creed or a church or pastor, or any kind of religious activity, Jesus Christ is the sole object of our faith. He says, follow me. So following Jesus, it's always an act of faith. It is trusting in the person of Christ. But let's go further. In his book, Following Jesus, which is serving as a kind of outline for this study, Andrew Randall talks about trusting in Christ in three ways. First, he says, trust is about learning. Second, trust is about loving. And third, trust is about living. So first, faith is about learning. Again, Jesus describes the Christian's conversion as a new or a second birth. And that analogy implies that we we kind of start all over and we have to grow up all over again. Well, in 1 Peter 2, Peter writes, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. 
The King James Version says, desire the sincere milk of the word. And I believe that's primarily what Peter has in mind. We need spiritual milk to grow spiritually, and God's word is a primary means of of drinking that milk. When Jesus called Simon and the others to follow him, he was inviting them to become what? His disciples. He was inviting them to become his students or his learners. And what do we see them doing over the next few years as they follow Jesus? They're continually learning. One lesson after another, they're learning and they're growing and they're coming into a more mature understanding. Then at the beginning of the the book of Acts, they become the teachers. They begin teaching others how to follow Jesus. Let's glance over at Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Starting at verse 38, we read the story of Jesus visiting Mary and her sister Martha, Luke 10, 38. It says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So it's not hard to see the contrast intended here. We have, on the one hand, Martha who was distracted with much serving, then we have Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Mary, Jesus says, has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now, in defense of Martha, I don't believe she was wrong because she was serving. She wasn't wrong because she was trying to be a good hostess. I mean, serving is ultimately where learning from Christ should lead us, right? As we learn from him, we become servants like him. No, Martha's problem wasn't serving. Her problem was that she was distracted with much serving. It would seem she was serving to the neglect of learning. There's a reason Jesus calls us to follow him. He didn't grab Simon and the others and pull them off the boats and tell them to to get to work in his kingdom, not immediately. They needed to learn first. They needed a teacher. And that's what Martha neglected. She prioritized serving over learning when learning must come first. Jesus says it's the one thing that is necessary. In Matthew 11, when Jesus invites those who labor and are heavy laden to come to him for rest, What does he say? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest in your souls. Faith is about learning. We have to learn about Jesus. 
We have to learn about Jesus before we can trust Him more. And the more we learn about Him, the more we come to trust Him. But how do we learn about Jesus? Well, faith is believing what God has said. It's believing what He has revealed to us. And what He has revealed to us, He has revealed in these days through Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete. Equipped for every good work. God's breathed out, inspired words of Scripture are sufficient to make us complete. Equipping us for every good work. They are sufficient to teach us how to follow Christ. You'll notice in Mark 1 that after Jesus called those four disciples to follow Him, they followed Him right into the synagogue where He was teaching. And notice how everyone responded to the Lord's teaching. They were astonished at His teaching, for He taught them as one who had authority. And since Christ now speaks to us through Scripture, we can safely infer that the Bible carries that same authority. So the Bible is authoritative, and it is sufficient. We don't need to hear the voice of God from heaven. We don't need Christ to return in the flesh to teach us as He did the apostles. We have His authoritative, sufficient Word in the Bible. But of course, that means we need to read it. We need to study it. We need to meditate on it. We need to digest it thoroughly. We need to sit at its feet, so to speak, as Mary sat at the feet of Jesus, listening to His teaching. We need to prioritize our time in the Bible. Serving is good, but learning from Christ is positively necessary. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. I'm not sure whether I could possibly emphasize this point too strongly. We need to be very serious about reading and studying the Word of God. You know, our pastor's sermons, learning from other disciples, reading Christian books, and so on, they're all part of of learning to follow Christ. Our pastor's ministries, in particular, are absolutely vital. But I would argue, as God has blessed us with a, a wealth, of access to His Word. The sermons we hear on a, on a given Sunday, um, they're not enough. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He seems to suggest that we need the Word of God as much, probably more, than our daily bread. Just as bread is needed every day, to sustain us physically. We need the Bible every day to sustain us spiritually. Let me also say that we need the Gospel every day. After all, the Gospel is the Bible's central message. Paul told the Corinthians, I would remind you, brothers, of the Gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, present tense, 
and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. He goes on to say the gospel is of first importance. It is foremost. It is above all else. Sadly, we often think of the gospel as a a kind of first step, if you will, in becoming a Christian. We hear it, we believe it, and then we continue growing on from that point, which is all true, but that's not to say we leave it behind somehow in any sense. We don't outgrow the gospel. According to Paul, we should be standing firmly on the good news of God's grace through Jesus Christ our Lord, the same good news that we received in the beginning when we first became Christians. It's the same good news of grace by which we are still being saved. As Andrew Randall says, we need to see everything through the lens of the cross. We won't continue learning what we need to learn if we lose sight of Christ crucified and resurrected and the grace that made that possible. So faith is about learning. Second, faith is also about loving. In 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul refers to this love as sincere and pure devotion to Christ. It's not merely a commitment of the mind. It's a commitment of the heart. It's a total and complete commitment. It's a genuine commitment. The other day I was reading in John 11 where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, before Jesus went to Lazarus, he told his disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples, they weren't especially thrilled about this plan. Why? Well, the last time they were there, Jewish leaders wanted to stone him. So they're all thinking, another trip into the region? Well, that's just a death sentence. Now, Jesus doesn't alleviate all their fears, but he explains the situation. He says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him, right? Now, of the disciples, I think Thomas tends to get kind of a bad rap. Most of us know him as doubting Thomas, right? But I believe he deserves more credit than we typically give him. In John 11... He turns to his fellow disciples and says, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now, we may judge him even there for not trusting in the Lord's plan, um, or at the very least not understanding the Lord's plan, but we can hardly find fault with his commitment, with his heart, if you will. He was the only disciple in that moment who essentially said, Lord, I will follow you anywhere, even to death. If we must go back to that place and die with you, so be it. That's an expression of just about as much devotion as anyone could ever express. So I think he deserves at least a little credit. Frankly, we can't separate faith from love. How could we trust Christ as his followers if we don't love him? How can we love Him if we don't trust Him? We love Christ because we trust Him, and we trust Him because we love Him. Now, last but not least, faith is also about living. It's about learning, it's about loving, and it's about living. Martin Luther once said, Oh, it is a living, 
busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. James writes, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's useless. It doesn't truly exist. In Mark 1, when Jesus called Simon and the others to follow him, what did they do? They literally, physically followed him. They dropped their nets, they laced up their hiking shoes, and they left. Where he went, they went. When he said, do this or do that, they obeyed. And their lives were never the same again. They were transformed thoroughly. Earlier this year, I read an interesting work of fiction called The Postmodern Pilgrim's Progress. It was written by the authors of the Babylon Bee, if that tells you anything. And I rem- if I remember the story correctly, the, the Christian character, he comes up to a place along the path. This is a place where every book is just gorgeous. It's beautifully bound. And in this place, everyone has a wealth of knowledge regarding the Bible and theology. But no one ever leaves. They don't continue walking the king's path. They just get stuck there. You know, they profess to love the king. They're constantly learning about the king. They're constantly talking about the king. In other words, they they learn and at least claim to love, but they never actually get around to living. They never get around to doing. Again, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. If Christ is our Lord, it stands to reason that we will submit to His rule. We will trust Him. We do trust Him. We love Him. We learn from Him. And we put into practice what we learn from Him. In other words, we drop our nets and we follow Him. Years ago, when I asked some of my fellow ministers, brothers, what shall we do, I was resisting that false notion that thinks God has saved us merely to sit back and wait for heaven. No, there is nothing biblical about that, and virtually everyone would agree with me. But we don't always live as though we agree, which is why we need to be reminded on occasion what it means to follow Christ. And God willing, that's what we will do over the course of the next several weeks. One area of life at a time, we're going to look at Scripture, we're going to look at what Jesus taught, we're going to look at His example, and we will, Lord willing, discover what does it mean to follow Christ in all of these different areas. We believe. Let's talk about what we do and how we do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful again for this church, for this gathering of your people, for drawing us to yourself and ultimately to one another. Lord, we're thankful to have the encouragement from one another. We're thankful for these Sunday schools where we can uh, think about and study your word together. May it be edifying to everyone here. May we leave with our our baskets full and not... uh, leave what we've heard behind. I pray this for all of our our classrooms this morning. Lord, you've been so good to us. You've blessed us. 
You continually taught us through Your Word and through Your pastors, and we pray that would continue even this morning. May we glorify You as we gather for worship in a few minutes. May Your name be honored above all else in our hearts, in our words, and in our actions. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.